0: Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion he's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank
1: you, sir, and good afternoon to you. Merry Christmas. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the program here for the 19th of December. trust you're having a good day so far, and as we head into the, uh, the ride home, happy to keep you company here as we do each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Hey, at the start, a quick reminder, if I might, Still need some volunteers for the upcoming Children's Christmas Party that's going to be held at the Richmond Civic Auditorium this Friday. That's the 21st. Part of the annual effort of the Bay Area Rescue Mission, 1,500 children and their family members will be coming to enjoy a meal, hear the Christmas story, a gospel message, and to receive two or three toys each. Many of these kids, in fact, for all these kids, it's the only toy that they will receive or toys that they will receive for. Christmas, so need your help. There's a lot to do with serving the kids and uh, helping to distribute the toys and what have you. So if you've got some free time on Friday, won't you come out and help? You can find out more information. Go to BayAreaRescue.org and click on the volunteer tab. That's BayAreaRescue.org. And as always, it's never too late to give. As you're thinking about your finalized holiday sharing for 2018, be sure to keep the Bay Area Rescue mission in mind. It's been an amazing year, of course course, uh, with the cold weather now, the need for providing food and shelter to Homeless families and folks that are on the edge is more critical than ever. So they need your support. Thank you for giving if you have before. And if you haven't, would you prayerfully consider doing so today? Go to KFAX.com and click on the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of our homepage. And again, volunteers needed for this Friday from about uh, 11 o'clock in the morning until about 2.33 in the afternoon for the annual Children's Christmas Party. Information available, go to bayarearescue.org. Speaking of Christmas, we've got a very special program for you tonight coming up in hour number two. We'll have some holiday Christmas thoughts from a a very dear longtime friend of mine, Reverend Ephraim Treadle, who had a program on here on KFAX for I think about 35 or 40 years till he went home to be with the Lord. We'll get into that later on. Also, we'll have some details for you regarding the annual Bethlehem AD event. But as we um, get down to cases tonight, it is um, a huge win, and uh, certainly a win for an administration that's been under fire repeatedly over the last um, several weeks in relationship to uh, the Mueller investigation and hearings and sentencings and all of this, and uh, even some of the challenges that we're facing right now on Wall Street. Many say it's high time that the president get a bit of a break, and he certainly has, as the Senate has voted 87 to 12 in passing the First Step Act. Many are calling this huge reform. Others say, well, maybe more moderate than anything. It is perhaps maybe not as big a win for federal prisoners as it is a win for demonstration that The United States Congress can actually come together in a bipartisan fashion and work together. Now that the bill has moved on to the House, there's hope that it will be passed in its current state. And the president has already said, you pass it and I will sign it. To talk more about this, we're joined by former U.S. attorney from Utah, Bush appointee, former legal counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee, Brent Tolman. Brent, good to have you with us and Merry Christmas.
2: Merry Christmas. Great to be with you, and thanks for having me.
1: Let me first get your your overall impression on the, the passage of this bill in the Senate. As I indicate, uh, it, it certainly is a huge win for the president. It's a huge win for bipartisanship, passing on an 87 to 12 vote. Um, is it as huge necessarily for prison reform when it comes to dealing with America's 2.1 million people currently in jail or prison in America?
2: You know, it's. Um, I enjoyed your lead-in because it does kind of highlight uh, a couple of very important issues. I, I've, I've been working on this. Um, you know, I was a federal prosecutor. I was tough on crime. I put a lot of bad guys in prison. But I've been working on this reform for about eight years, and I've seen it through. You know, a couple of administrations now, and and I'll tell you, I've never seen anything like what the Trump White House was able to do in terms of putting together the the right folks and a team of people and getting reform that you know it's some have said it is modest i find that it's mostly uh the democrats and and liberals that are arguing that it's modest because they wanted much larger and sweeping change but this is change that that followed uh uh, patterned itself after texas for example where they they closed eight prisons and saved over $4 billion, all while seeing their crime rate and recidivism rate drop. So, to me, this is very important and very big change.
1: So, in the sense, as some have um, sort of um, taken a play on the name of the bill, um, the First Step Act, uh, is this one giant, big step, then, in your estimation, Brett?
2: It is. It's a giant step because the federal system has not had any meaningful reform for decades, and I'm talking 20, 30 years um, since the 1990s. Was there any, you know, measurable uh, bill out there that addressed some of the issues or problems? And so it's big in that regard. It's big in what the results may may occur, at least on the federal level. But I think what you highlighted is, is great, Craig, because this is the first time really since 2003 that Congress has come together in a real bipartisan way. So maybe there maybe there's a little hope at this uh, Christmas time that we might get more of
1: this. Yeah, indeed. So I mean, it, it's very encouraging in that regard. And again, it's probably as big a win for bipartisanship and the administration as it is for uh, an important first step toward criminal justice reform. And let's spend some time talking about that. You know, California was one of the leading states back in the 1990s on the the heels of the horrific kidnapping and eventual murder of polyclass by Richard Allen Davis, who was one of the last prisoners here in California to be uh, put to death in the, the California um, execution chamber. On the heels of that, of course, California passed the three strikes, you're out legislation Many steps, many states followed. On the heels of the notion that, quite frankly, at the time, there just seemed to be entirely too much leniency. But many have said in the years following the passage of three strikes that it, that it tends to take away from judges the ability to have any discretion whatsoever. And so now, suddenly, even a minor infraction puts somebody in jail for the rest of their life. It certainly underscores the notion that we have a criminal justice system, but not one that seems to be very weighted towards so called criminal reform.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, a lot of people may not appreciate that a prosecutor has three objectives. Uh, the Department of Justice says you're supposed to work for punishment and deterrence and rehabilitation, but nobody talks about rehabilitation. And during the 90s, let's face it, we, you know, as a country, we said we're going to be tough on crime. And, and we were, it was almost as though we were competing to see who could be the toughest on crime. And nobody thought through, well, is that the smartest? And look, I I prosecuted the kidnapper of Elizabeth Smart, uh, Brian David Mitchell. So I I know about you know tough crimes that deserve tough punishment. But I also noticed that we had individuals that were being warehoused that um, at forty plus thousand dollars per year, uh, that was ballooning. You know the the cost to to a society that is. Um, not able to keep up to, up with it, so there had to be a better way. That's when the states started giving us examples: Texas, Georgia, South Carolina, um, Utah. There were many that that started to say, "We've got to do something different because we can't sustain this." And California is now, you know, truly appreciating that.
1: Well, indeed, so I mean, you know, the 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 utter irony has been that in California, we'll spend ten to twelve thousand dollars a year to educate a child. Uh, and claim that that's the best we can do, and yet we'll spend sixty, sixty-five thousand dollars 65000 a year to house a, uh, a low-level prisoner with uh, not the bat of an eye. And uh, great, they great if they're a violent offender, uh, we'll look out, because now if they're sitting on San Quentin's death row, that figure is more like $150,000, $200,000 a year. That's right. That's right. You
2: know, I... I when I first started meeting with members of Congress back in Washington, D.C. in 2011 on this issue, they kind of laughed because, I, I, you know, I'm a Republican, and they kind of laughed at my suggestion. I thought I could get conservatives to get behind this. Um, and, and what people didn't realize is it may have started out as a, as a budget issue and a spending and a fiscal issue, but where it's ended is a recognition about the human dignity and the ability to reform, and that that lowers recidivism, and that equals better safety than all the punishment you could dole out.
1: Indeed, so, and that that takes us to the heart of another matter of this that I want to talk about after the break, and that is the notion that you know we we've done a good job at being punitive. And it is, after all, the, 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 the penal system, right? We, we all get that. We understand that. But in the effort to try and be punitive, we've been horrific when it comes to being restorative. So then when they go into jail, a minor criminal, they spend five, six, seven, ten years, whatever, surrounded by professional criminals. And now they come out having learned from the best, and they continue a life of crime and even more so. We wonder what went wrong. Really? Really? Talk about that and more. We'll get to the nuts and bolts of this new prison reform bill, First Step Act, passed with overwhelming bipartisan support in the Senate. A few holdouts. We'll tell you who those were later. This is now moving on to the House for consideration there, assuming that it uh, passes and every indicator is that it shall. It will then move on to the president's desk, the first such federal prison reform in decades. Brett Tolman, former U.S. attorney from Utah, an appointee by President George Bush, former legal counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. We'll come back to more of our conversation with Brett Tolman as Lifeline continues. 517, that's the time. Who's got traffic? Well, Nick Domenici's got traffic hanging out tonight at the KFAX Traffic Center. Nick, what's up?
3: KFAX Traffic is sponsored by Mountain Mike's Pizza.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We are talking about overwhelming bipartisan support in the Senate passage of the First Step Act. This is the first real serious attempt at prison reform since so much of the tightening of the laws took place at both the state and federal level in the uh, the penal system back in the 1990s. And uh, with that, we are joined by Brent Tolman, former U.S. Attorney from Utah. He was an appointee by President Bush also served as legal counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. This is interesting, Bill. Uh, When you begin to sort of peel back the layers of onion in the support for the measure, uh, rare do you find a bill that's supported by Republicans and the ACLU. (laughs) But this, in fact, is one. And one of the interesting things that I've read here, and and give us some clarity on this, if you would, Brent, um, it, it, it addresses the issue of the disparity between penalties for possession or use of crack cocaine versus white powder cocaine. And I guess at the end of the day, the the, the penalties between the two, one sort of being the, the, the drug of choice for people that have money, powder cocaine, and the other, the choice of people that are impoverished. And I guess it's like saying, what, that the penalty for doing 50 in a 35 zone if you're driving a Hyundai is $750, but if you do it in a Mercedes, it's only 400. It's
2: the best analogy I've ever heard, Chris. Um, you know, that's, that's exactly what it is. And it's it's unconscionable when you're in my shoes and you're asked to enforce the laws and you had to, you know, have reason or a basis for why persons of color and impoverished individuals were were being punished at a uh, accelerated and higher rate than those that, you know, utilize the same substance but in a different form. Uh, so it lowers that to, it's still not... One to one, but it lowers it down to eighteen to one, which is you know, which was a, a number that was agreeable to the DEA um, and to conservatives and and uh, progressives the same. So that's a fix that's you know immediately uh, impacted and, and uh, help thousands of, of families and, and prisoners.
1: The the bulk of this particular reform bill, though, uh, has not been without its opposition. I understand that. Uh, um senator john kennedy from louisiana uh is not a big fan of it tom cotton of arkansas too not a very big fan i think one of them is, is referred to this as just you know a dangerous way to release uh criminals out on the street early but are they necessarily criminals in the sense of being violent criminals or is this more more drug use drug possession related yeah you
2: know i I've been in Washington, D.C. a long time, and I've really never seen such an a, a, um, incredible, dishonest uh, effort to criticize uh, a bill. And it's coming from a very small faction uh, of individuals, Senator Cotton and Senator Kennedy, of course, leading that. But they referred to it as a jailbreak. They referred to this, you're going to let bad guys out. And it, it, let me give you something that puts this all, all to rest current federal law requires that an individual serve 85 percent of their sentence in the custody of the bureau of Prisons. after this bill is passed they will still have to serve 85 percent of their sentence in the custody of the bureau of Prisons. the difference between the bill is this before the first step act there are no programs no training no measuring of their risk of recidivism. None of the inmates do you know whether they're a low risk or a high risk of recidivating when they get out, committing more crimes. After the First Step Act, they are gonna give them programming and training and education, but they're gonna measure their risk of recidivism along the way. And if they lower it to low or minimum risk of recidivism, they'll be able to earn their way into a halfway house or home confinement.
1: See, this is what I've always thought, because for the longest time, and again, as I said before the break, Brett, it is the criminal penal system, and I get that. But the problem, of course, is that it's all leaned historically on being punitive and not restorative, and I've always thought, you know, if we want to do something for for prisoners and we want to make a change, uh, why don't we stay, instead of saying, okay, we're going to lock you in a six-by-eight cell 23 hours a day, let you out for an hour on the yard where you can build up build up your muscles using the Free weights and, and become a more powerful criminal, uh, and then at the end of four years, you know, give you five hundred dollars in a cheap suit and wish you luck. Why don't we say things like, okay, if you come into jail and you have no GED, uh, if you in prison earn your GED, we will give you. X percentage of time off of your sentence. If you come here and you have a high school education and you do not have an AA, we will do the same thing. In other words, motivate them and provide them with skills necessary so that when they come out of jail, instead of ultimately feeling as if they have no choice but to go back to crime, to go back to drugs, because that's all they know and that's all that they can do, that we have at least provided them with some of the skills necessary. And the other thing that I've never really understood, and that is we penalize them by saying, because you've committed a federal crime, we're not going to allow you to vote. That somehow we think that that's either going to be, I don't know, punishment, or that, that people are going to not commit crimes because they, oh, my, you can't dare run the risk of losing my right to vote. I mean, it, it just seems to me, of all of the things to try and take away to make the point toward a prisoner, that's one of the most ridiculous ones of all. Well, you
2: know, it's it's fascinating because... You you hit on, on something that really reveals the the absurdity of the criticisms of the First Step back, And that is, you, you, critics say it's a jailbreak. They're just getting out. We're letting bad guys out. Well, here's the dirty little secret. 95% of them are going to get out. They do get out. The question is, how do you want them, and in what shape do you want them when they do get out? Because personally... I want them having focused on and been incentivized to lower their risk through education, faith-based programs, training, job training. I want them to have invested in their ability on the other side when they get out to be productive. So that that's what's ironic about it. If you're Senator Cotton, you don't want you just want punishment for the sake of punishment to throw away the key. That's not what a conservative should be wanting. That's not what a society should be wanting. And it's certainly not what prosecutors should want. Well, and
1: while it might feel good to say, you know, we've thrown away the key and we've taught this mom a lesson, at what price towards society? Because at the end of the day, the, the, the man or woman's family and children suffer. The taxpayers suffer. Uh, we end up housing them at ridiculous rates. Uh, America has the highest per capita jail terms of any modern nation, maybe any nation in the world. Uh, 2.1 million people are in jail or prison in America right now. And, you know, while it might make and, – and listen, don't get me wrong. I very strongly supported Three Strikes You're Out when it was floated here in California Back in the 1990s, because at that time there was so much discretion that a lot of the the violent criminals uh, were, you know, getting a, a slap on the backside and told, you know, what a naughty thing you've done. Don't do it again and sent back out into the world again to repeat their crimes. But the right. irony is that so many of these people, as you're suggesting, Brett, are are not individuals that have committed uh, violent crimes but most of them in terms of w- those that will be impacted by this bill are in for minor level drug-related charges and you know I, it, it sounds good to say let's get tough on crime and let's let's have a big major war against drugs but you know at, at what point are we going to admit the utter failure of everything that we've done so far so if penalizing them doesn't change behavior maybe incentivizing will
2: yeah, well, one of the first cases I, I worked on as a federal prosecutor was a case of a, a 22, 23-year-old kid, and they are kids of that age, who um, had virtually no criminal history, who stole three cars trying to run away after he, he was mad at his girlfriend. Did he commit crime? Yeah, he did. He, he carjacked three three vehicles. Um, but under the federal statute, he was looking at 70 years' mandatory minimum in a state system he was gonna look at three and in the federal system there's no parole. So that pendulum swung way too far on the tough on crime. And that that individual is still in prison today. I had to get special permission to offer him thirty years minimum sentence which he took and agreed to and pled guilty to and is in prison today.
1: See and this He's this this, this story that you shared, Brett. Shows the disconnect because, you know, if if you're talking about somebody that you say you know has gone out and violently carjacked three occasions in rapid succession and has a rap sheet that's that's twenty years and twenty miles long, I, I would probably suggest to you that by the time somebody has done nothing but spend time in and out of jails in the criminal justice system since their late teens and they're now in their forties or 50s, the idea of any significant reform and a turnabout mm, d- diminishes pretty yeah. rapidly at that point. But you get a kid that's 20 years old, you still yeah. have a chance to redeem. Even if they're 30 or, or 35 or 40 years old, there's still a life there that, that that not only is capable of being redeemed, but also then being turned around to become a productive citizen. That's
2: right. He's 20, 20 years old. He's going to get out when he's 50. And he had no criminal history before that. And, and I know what it's like when you're that age and, and the thinking and the, the, the poor judgment that you have. And that's, that's not to suggest you didn't, you shouldn't get punished. But imagine if you had a 10 year sentence, which is very long. And while he's in there, he's getting recidivism reduction and he's getting some programming and he's having faith based community work with him. You tell me after 10 years, um, that 32 year old isn't a lot wiser and, and ready to be, you know, contribute. Uh, yeah, he is. Um, so it is. It is as you'd stated exactly. The the tough on crime didn't work. We failed the, the the war on drugs, and now we're finally realizing we can do it in a smart way. And it's the states that have taught us.
1: And, and and this will put things in perspective. We'll take a timeout, come back with some closing comments from you, Brent. But th- this will put things in perspective. Think about a response to this during the break. Uh, Martha Stewart. Martha Stewart got five months in federal penitentiary and a two-year probation. And yet no one in the banking real estate derivatives meltdown of 2008 spent even one night in county jail. So think about that. <laughs> we'll take a timeout. We're pleased to have with us today former U.S. Attorney Brett Tolman, Bush appointee, former legal counsel to the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. We're talking about the passage, pretty overwhelming, too, on a vote of 87 to 12 of the First Step Act has now made its way through the Senate on its way to the House, and the president is eager to sign this into law, not only enjoying bipartisan support, but even support amongst unlikely um, allies. Conservative Republicans and the ACLU? Well, there you have it. We'll be back with more of our conversation. Some closing thoughts from Brent Tolman as this edition of Lifeline continues. 533, 33. yes, sir, indeed. Elmer Fudd doing the show tonight. Five let's get a look at traffic. <laughs> Here's Nick Domenici. Nick, bail me out here.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Back with former U.S. Attorney Brett Tolman. We're talking about the bipartisan support um, of the First Step Act passed by the Senate on an 87 to 12 vote. Now moves on to the House and eventually, hopefully, to the President's desk for his signature. He's already indicated he will sign it. Has this moved through easier with the absence of Jeff Sessions?
2: You know, I'd be lying if I said it It, it wasn't a big impact. Um, you know, when he was senator, he um, ironically was one that negotiated lowering the crack uh, and uh, cocaine and powder cocaine disparity, and he also supported a couple other changes. But he developed some really strong resistance. And even as we speak, those that were left behind in the Department of Justice are still working very hard tonight to try to get the house to, to not, you know, not vote for it. It's, it's, it's almost mind boggling because I think it stems from this notion to be. To be a good prosecutor, you got to be tough on crime, and the only option to be tough on crime is to put up people away for as long as,
0: as you possibly
1: can. Well, tough so, on crime certainly resonates at the ballot box. The problem is, I think, if the voters fully understood um, how much we're spending in the criminal justice system in America, uh, most people would say, now, wait a minute, we're, you know <laughs> we're paying how much and we're getting what kind of results, and the rate of recidivism is, what, over 80%? Something here yeah. has got to give.
2: That's right. And the, and the polling is changing because when you're locking up somebody that, that is somebody's, you know, family member, friend or or relative, and we're doing that, we, we incarcerate 25% of the world's incarcerated. Um, when you start doing that, you start building up resistance and you start changing, uh, in terms of what is expected by our criminal justice system. And it's not. Just to lock them up and throw away the key. It's to be
1: smarter than that. And clearly, as I suggested before the break, I mean there there are there are some blatant injustices or imbalances. I I, I always laugh, and I you know I, I'm I'm no fan of her cooking show. But poor Martha Stewart, <laughs> five months in jail, uh, two-year probation, and uh, this is all in insider trading. And yet, last time I checked, it was not illegal for members of Congress to engage in insider trading. And uh, the utter irony, the shame of the fact that in the 2008 real estate derivatives meltdown, nobody, not a single person, saw even a day of jail time for that. I mean, is, is that, in a broad sense, kind of anecdotal to uh, the 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 imbalances we see in the criminal justice system?
2: Yes, and it certainly is the next steps, the second step, for example, that needs to come, and that is to address some of the over the, um, overcriminalization in some areas and the lack of consistency. But, you know, if we're going to start somewhere, why aren't we, why aren't we uh, prosecuting uh, individuals that were using taxpayer money to pay off um, you know accusers uh, of sexual misconduct and our representatives uh, you know you can just you can see that there's a reason why the public is starting to, to really despise the application of the criminal justice system so there's a lot of work we still have ahead of us
1: now before everybody starts to panic. And and buys into some of what Tom Cotton has said that is going to uh, release these uh, dangerous criminals all over the streets. Uh, let's be quick in saying that is not the case. They're going to be released at some point anyway. This is just shortening some of the sentences. It's also giving them better incentives to improve their life. Uh, And we should be careful to say that this is only federal legislation. And isn't it true, to the best of your knowledge, Brett, that the vast majority of people held in in the criminal justice system in America today are actually at the state level, which will not even be impacted by this law then. Am I correct?
0: That's
2: right. There's roughly only 200,000 prisoners in the federal system. That's about the equivalent of Texas is incarcerated. So it's about 10% of the of the population of, that are incarcerated. And of those that will get to utilize the benefits of the First Step Act in those 200,000, only those that are minimal or low risk of recidivism. So a lot of the real dangerous and uh, violent criminals will not be able to take advantage of it.
1: Which makes perfect sense, because at the end of the day, anyone supporting this bill doesn't want to have to turn around in six months or six years when they're up for re-election and have to defend how uh, their signature or their vote in favor of this bill let out some dangerous criminal that went on a killing spree and and started acting crazy. Most of the people that do that anyway in this country have no previous criminal history whatsoever whatsoever. So go figure. At the end of the day, as we mentioned, this 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 impacts federal law, not state law. Is there the hopes that this will be kind of a model then that the states can look at and and engage in some of their own state-level reform?
2: Yes, exactly. This, this was modeled after some very courageous, tough-on-crime states. And now that the federal system is, is poised to do it, I think you'll start to see that across the board, um, and we'll see where we get to. There's, there's work and effort that, that we need. We need Democrats and Republicans to engage on this issue.
1: And I understand that Jared Kushner's name has been all over this, that he's been carrying a tremendous amount of water on behalf of the administration to, to get this measure and, and get support on board, particularly from the more conservative side of the uh, Republican Senate, which certainly is a big win for the president.
2: I've had the privilege of working with Jared uh, very closely over the last year and a half. And I I say privilege because I've seen up front and close his his passion and his leadership, and it has been remarkable. It it really is something I haven't seen in Washington, D.C.
1: Now, there's a comment you don't hear on MSNBC.
2: (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's true. Well, Brett, we sure appreciate your time and expertise to uh, shed some light on this, to bring a little bit of truth and balance to uh, what's behind the bill, the motivation, and uh, the benefits of it. Brett Tolman, former U.S. attorney from Utah and to that position by President Bush, and former legal counsel to the United States Senate, with his look at uh, passage again of the First Step Act. Now after the vote in the Senate, 87 to 12, it moves on to the House for consideration. And the president has indicated that uh, if passed in the current form, he will be happy to sign it. Our thanks to Brett Tolman for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. 545, they tell me. Let's see what they tell me about traffic. Nick Domenici's got more on that front. Nick? Oh,
0: little town of Bethlehem, How still we see thee lie Above thy deep and dreamless
1: sleep The silent stars go by Yes, indeed they do. And of course, as we mark the beginning of the holiday season here, and most importantly, the um, special observance of Christmas for believers across the world. Once again, for many Bay Area folks, it wouldn't be Christmas without Bethlehem A.D. Now in its 26th year, and joining me is the creative director of Bethlehem A.D., Paula Dresden. And Paul, as always, a, a very Merry Christmas to you.
3: Well, thank you. Thank you for letting me share about Bethlehem AD on your show.
1: This is an amazing experience, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking back over all the years. So we've been on the air 29 years, and I think we've done this just about uh, 24 or 25 of the 26 years that Bethlehem AD has been in existence. And it's of course, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, Paula, this has really become for so many a family tradition, and what a wonderful way to enter into the full spirit of. The Christmas season than to do it with Bethlehem AD. But for folks that are new, don't know anything about it, tell us a bit about the about the concept behind Bethlehem AD.
3: Well, Bethlehem AD uh, tells the story of the first Christmas, and we do it as a gift to the Bay Area. It's totally free, and um, what we do is create the town of Bethlehem with all the different aspects. You see, uh, centurion Romans and village people and folk dancers and such like that. And uh, the guest enters in and sees all this chaos, sort of like our world today, and then they are it it all concludes at the manger where um, angels are giving glory to God and praising Him for the Savior being born that night. And the guest leaves, making their own conclusions about what Christmas is all about, which makes it user-friendly for people who don't know the Lord and, um, you know, so I, it's been
1: successful and, and of course, as you mentioned it re- it really gives people a sense of the the reality of christmas um, the The Christmas story is one of course that happened many, many, many years ago, and yet you 've been able to come together and really in in a sense recreate this, and as much as we 've seen it. On television or at the movies or read it in stories, literally you bring Bethlehem AD to life. Tell us about all of the inner workings. This has got to take months and months and months of preparation and untold numbers of volunteers.
3: Well, it does take a lot of preparation and a lot of volunteers. Everyone works for free, uh, including myself. So uh, each year it's uh, a task for me to try and find new people to fill in others, you know, move on and do other things. And so we're always looking for creative people to come in and give us a hand and also just to come up with ideas.
1: This year's Bethlehem AD will run December 21, 22, and 23 nightly from 6 until 9:30 p.m. rain or shine. Walk us through the experience, if you would. Folks that come down into uh, downtown um, Redwood City there at uh, 1305 Middlefield Road will be in for quite a surprise. Um, realism has been sort of the watchword for what you've done down through the years. So uh, kind of walk us through what the experience looks like, Paula.
3: Well, okay. Now, the first thing that they'll see is a large crowd. They'll see um, Starcracker lights that shows you where the spot of Bethlehem is. And um, they can be directed when they come to a parking lot. Kaiser Permanente uh, has let us use their parking garage, and we have uh, shuttles going back and forth. It's, uh, it's very quick, but it it allows for parking in downtown Redwood City. And then the next thing they'll encounter is probably a long line. And the line we know is long because we only want uh, uh, to allow, uh, you know, a, a few people. Well, no, I shouldn't say few, but as many people as the village can allow for the visitors to have a good time. So the um, the line does get kind of long, but we totally entertain at the line. So you'll see on the line centurions marching back and forth. You'll see animals going up and down, led on leads. And you'll see Herod the Great, who um, is trying to find this king, who never does find him, who wants to kill him if he does find him. So that's nice, and he has an entourage of um, dancers around him. And uh, we'll have children in a chain gang who's um, who have been captured in um, in Germania or something like that and are being taken down to Rome to be sold as slaves. That's one of the things we've got going out there. And let's see, all greeters and people just going, you know, saying hello, gr- greeting people. So then once you get inside Bethlehem, you'll see um, tax collectors. We, oh, we give coins to everybody to give to the tax collectors everything's free so they give their little gold coin to the tax collector and then they come on in and um, they give their signature to the census taker and they'll encounter now the marketplace and we have uh, a potter actually making pottery there we have kids in the marketplace making uh, metal jewelry that they wear then we have a bakery they're baking bread in the bakery and then we have a marketplace with vegetables and fruits and stuff and we're also going to add a spice market this year so that'll be kind of interesting and the kids um, are in tribes they have little roles to do and they will uh, give you maybe a nut to taste or something like that also we have a a synagogue where um, there's rabbis debating about who this messiah could be, so how could the messiah be sleeping, he's supposed to never sleep nor slumber, so they're debating whether this is the real one, and that's interesting, they're reading scripture, and the kids are in also in the synagogue um, learning some Hebrew words and stuff like that, and well, then you'll see folk dancers and people cooking over the fires, because the cast eats their dinner at Bethlehem, so you'll be seeing people eating and so forth. And then there's this huge area we have for the animals, and so you'll visit. Oh, I forgot the inn. The inn is an exciting area where there's interaction and talk about. There's just no room, and what happened to Mary and Joseph? They had to send them down the road to the to a stable, and um, then you encounter a lot of animals. We have about 150 animals, including chickens and rabbits, but um, total. And the visitors go by and they can pet the animals and visit with them and so forth. And then finally they reach the the manger where we have angels dancing and um, they are choreographed in their dance. They dance for three and a half hours straight with no break. And so it's really quite beautiful. The church across the street, uh, angels are on the roof and those are kind of like what we call our warrior angels. And they're doing warrior kind of positions. So the
0: whole thing is just kind
1: of a, an experience. It, it's really quite, yeah. quite spectacular. And, again, many folks across the Bay Area use this as a great way to officially launch the start of their Christmas. Again, running December 21st, 22nd, 23rd, from 6 to 9.30 p.m. Each evening, rain or sign. There's no cost. You can get more information by going to BethlehemAD.com. That's BethlehemAD.com. Literally, Bethlehem comes to life in the middle of downtown Redwood City. Look for the searchlights. Make it a part of your Christmas holiday season as well. Bethlehem A.D., now in its 26th year. Information again on the web at BethlehemAD.com. Mark the dates, December 21, 22, and 23, from 6 to 9.30 p.m. nightly. And our thanks to Paula Dresden, creative director with Bethlehem A.D., and we wish you much continued success with this year's event, Paula, and a very Merry Christmas to you.
3: Well, thank
0: you, Craig. Thanks so much. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars.